This passage is normally referred to as the triumphal entry. If you have a Bible, maybe that is even over uh, as a heading, verses 12 through 19. Anybody look at verses, this is Gospel of John, chapter 12, and verse 12 through 19. That's what we're going to cover today. Anybody have a title that says the triumphal entry or something like that over their Bible? We're going to see that that's a mis misnomer. This was not a triumphal entry by any means. We're going to also discover that John's Gospel tells the story a bit differently than the other Gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story from one perspective. The Gospel of John tells the story from a totally different perspective. In fact, if you studied the Gospel of John, you would discover that Jesus has come to Jerusalem on four different occasions. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he comes to Jerusalem only once. Now think about that. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus cleanses the temple right before he's put to death. Same week before he's put to death. In John's Gospel, he cleanses the temple way back in chapter 2. So, John is giving us a different perspective. He's picking out events. He's putting them in different orders because he has an audience and he wants to uh, convey a certain message to his audience. And so, he doesn't put everything in complete chronological order. So, we say that John has a unique view of Palm Sunday. So, let's look at John chapter 12, and we're going to study verses 12 through 19. Now, last week you'll remember that pilgrims began to arrive about a week early to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover. They would get there early because they needed to purify themselves. And that, you, know, you just couldn't go in whenever you want and just purify yourself. There was some sort of order. You had 250,000 people in Jerusalem at this point for the feast. And so they would be arriving about a week early. And thousands of them would be arriving daily to Jerusalem. We also saw that Jesus, uh, as the pilgrims are arriving, Jesus spends an evening in Bethany. And he attends a dinner in his honor. That's attended by Simon the leper. It's attended by his apostles. It's attended by Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, and they are celebrating the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and Jesus is the guest of honor at this dinner. So, verses 9 through 12 take, us, take place the following day after the dinner. So look at verse 12. Look what it says. The next day, meaning the day after Jesus has this dinner with Mary, Lazarus, and all those, a great multitude that had come to the feast, the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Now I want you to notice two directions are mentioned in these verses. Did you pick it up? There's more than meets the eye in John's Gospel, and this is a good example of it. Two directions are mentioned. Look in verse 12. Look at the words coming to. Look. The next day a great multitude 
had come to the feast. Did you see that? When they had heard that Jesus was coming to. Did you see that coming to? There's a group that's coming to the feast. Now look in verse 13. A group of people took palm branches and went where? Out. Okay, so we have two directions. We have two groups of people. We have people who are coming to the feast, thousands of them, pilgrims arriving daily, coming to the feast. And then you have people who are already in Jerusalem. They've already arrived in Jerusalem. And they're coming out. Now what are they coming out for? In other words, what's going on? Two groups here. One coming in and one coming out. So let me just read that. The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. And this is going to sort of uh, set the frame for these next verses. So we have two groups of people. A mass of pilgrims arriving uh, in Jerusalem, going to Jerusalem for the feast. And they're coming from the east. And then the second group is coming out of Jerusalem and they're going to meet Jesus. To meet Jesus. And they're coming from the west. Okay, And these two groups, two throngs of people, converge outside the city gate. Okay, So that's the setting. So once you have the setting, everything sort of falls into place. Now, why did they come out of the city? Why does the second group come out of the city? Look what it says. Verse 12. The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they did what? Heard that Jesus was coming, took palm branches, and went out. So what brings them out of the city once they've arrived? Is that they've heard that Jesus is coming. Uh, the miracle worker is coming. The one that many people believe is the Messiah. He's arriving. And so what they do is they go out to meet him. And so there's a rush to go out and see this miracle worker, Jesus, who's coming to the city. Uh, the only thing I can liken it to was when the Beatles came to America. Remember that? And what happened when the Beatles came to America? People just flocked to see those Beatles. Remember, thousands of people. They put barriers up. The cops had to come out. It was just, you know, the excitement, you know, filled the air. So... That's what's happening. Word, they hear the word that Jesus is coming. And they start going out of the city to meet him. Now notice what they do. It's very interesting what they do. Look at verse 13. First of all, they took something. You see that? They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. That's the first thing. Now, palm branches were used for many different occasions in, in Bible times, but one of the things that palm branches were used for was to greet a hero. And we know this from when uh, Judas Maccabeus defeated Antiochus Epiphanes, remember that evil man back in 164? <coughs> uh, drove Antiochus Epiphanes, the guy who desecrated the temple, drove him and his army out of the city of Jerusalem, and now he comes back from battle. Judas <coughs> Maccabeus is met by thousands of people as he comes into the city, and they're waving palm branches. And palm branches represented military victory and the welcoming of a hero. And that's what's happening here. They are welcoming Jesus, in a sense, as a hero, one who's going to deliver them, not from Antiochus Epiphanes, 
but it's going to deliver them from Caesar in Rome. So the Jews, you know, were oppressed. We think of, you know, the Jews just lived in Jerusalem and everything was fine. They were oppressed by the Romans. And they think that Jesus might be the Messiah who's going to deliver them from Rome and set up God's kingdom. Now, it's interesting that when you look at Matthew's Gospel, he says that they laid the palm branches on the ground and formed a path for Jesus, and some took off their clothes and laid that on the ground. So that's what you would do for royalty. When, it, when a king came into an area, you would give him the royal, a royal welcome, or what we call the red carpet treatment. And he would walk on the red carpet. So this is what they're doing. They're giving Jesus the red carpet treatment. Now it's interesting that John's Gospel is the only one that mentions palm branches. So you thought this is Palm Sunday. It's Palm Sunday according to John's Gospel. Nowhere else is the word palm mentioned on this day in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So it's sort of interesting, isn't it? So what is John saying? He uses the word palm, and they probably did have palms, but he wants to emphasize the palm waving and the palm, the palm waving so that his audience would understand that this is a hero's welcome. They see Jesus as a great military man who's going to defeat Rome and set up God's kingdom. So that's the first thing they do. They took something, palm branches, and went out to meet them. What else did they do? Look at the end of verse 13. And they did what? Cried out. They spoke. What did they cry out? Hosanna! Which means, save us now. Save us now, meaning save us from Rome. They're hunting for national deliverance, not deliverance of their soul. Okay, they're not trying to say, Lord, save my soul. No, they're saying save our nation. Deliver us from Rome. That's what Hosanna means. And they say this, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They realize that Jesus is God's representative who's going to lead the way to the setting up of God's kingdom. And he's favored by God, just as Judas Maccabeus was favored by God, just as Moses was favored by God, and led an exodus and a deliverance from an oppressive government. So they say, and Jesus, he's favored, graced, blessed by God. And look how they identify Jesus at the end of verse 14. They say he's the, what? King of Israel. You see that? King of Israel. That's how they identify him. He's the one that's going to set up God's kingdom, and he's going to be Israel's king. So that's what this is all about. So, this is their evaluation of Jesus. That's how the crowd that comes out evaluates Jesus. He's going to be a conqueror who's going to overthrow Rome, set up God's kingdom, and be the conquering king himself. Now, we get Jesus evaluation of the events. Jesus' take on the events. Notice how Jesus responds to this, this adulation. <clears throat> Look at verse 14. Then Jesus, when he found a young donkey, sat on it. So here Jesus sees all the people going, oh, save us, deliver us from Rome, waving their We'd say waving their American flags as, you know, a returning general 
you know, came back from war. But this picture of him getting on a donkey, that's not like Patton. General Patton, this isn't like General Washington on a strapping stallion giving orders to his men. You'd think there was a million. Yankee Doodle, remember that? He's not on some conquering stallion high up above everybody else. What does he get on? The lowliest animal that there is. A donkey. Which means the exact opposite of conquer a conquering king. A conquering king would never get on. And then the Gospel writer John says he did that in fulfillment of the scripture, as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. Yes, he is. But what's he sitting on? Sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, it shows you that there are two ways of looking at Jesus' entry into the city. One is a conquering king. Hosanna, save us now! Right? Or to look upon Jesus as a king, but not a conquering king, a king who comes in humility and sits on a donkey. Now you'll notice in verse 13, and you'll notice in verse 15, they're both scripture passages. Do you see that? Okay. Verse 13, that's a quote from Psalm 118. So when Jesus comes into the town, the people scream Psalm 118. Save us now, deliver us now. Okay. They see Jesus as a warrior king, king of Israel. But the scripture in verse 15 comes from Zechariah 9. And that's just the opposite of the picture from Psalm 118. <clears throat> Jesus is not going to come you know, with swords in his hands and overthrow the Roman government, coming as a humble king on a donkey. So it says that the, the audience, the group of people who are coming out and meet him, have a false concept of what the Messiah is. They think the Messiah is going to overthrow Rome. Jesus is showing that uh, that's not what he's going to do. He doesn't come as a conquering king to overthrow Rome. They have a false concept of the Messiah. And this is the problem that you have in all the Gospels, is that people have an idea what the Messiah is and what he's going to do, and it's wrong. Jesus' understanding of who the Messiah is and what he's going to do is totally different than theirs. Okay? Now, I want you to notice one thing in verse 15, verses 14 and 15. Jesus doesn't speak at all. Have you notice that? You see Jesus talking there? Did he ever open his mouth? Jesus doesn't open his mouth. What does he do? He just gets up on the donkey and rides in, right? And then notice the gospel writer John says, as it is written. This is John's explanation. See? So Jesus silently testifies against the ideas of the masses who think he's a conquering king. He is a king, but what kind of king? Based on Ezekiel, or based on Zechariah chapter 9, what kind of a king is he? He's a lowly king, a humble king, who will not lift up his finger in violence. <clears throat> now, if we had a lot of time, 
we go back to the Zechariah uh, passage, and we would just study it in some detail. If I were in a classroom, that's what I would do. <clears throat> but just let me tell you what Zechariah 9 says. It says this. When Messiah comes in to the city, he shall speak peace to the nations. That's what Zechariah 9.10 says. Now listen to this. He shall speak what? Peace. What do they think he's going to do? War. He shall speak peace. He shall speak peace to the what? Nations. Nations is bigger than Israel. He hasn't come to save Israel. He's come to save the world. He's come to save the nations, you see. And he speaks peace to the nations. So his mission is much wider than reaching the Jews. And his method of accomplishing his mission is totally different. He's going to do it, according to Zechariah 9, by, look at this, speaking, speaking peace to the nations. So Jesus comes, bringing his kingdom through proclamation, through preaching. So, even in the Revelation, when we have Jesus coming back, you remember when Jesus comes back and he sets up the kingdom on earth? It says, and a sword proceeded out of his mouth. Remember the next, there's a common, it says, that is, anybody know what the next part is? That is the word of God. It's not a sword in his hand where he's just cutting people's heads off and defeating a nation. No. The weapon that he uses is a sword that proceeds out of his mouth, which is what? The word of God. It's through proclamation. See? So look at the result. This is very interesting. Verse 16 says, His disciples did not understand these things. You see that? They couldn't grasp it. And the reason they couldn't grasp it is because they had the same idea of the Messiah as the masses did. They thought when Jesus came in, he was going to overthrow Rome and set up the kingdom of God right on earth. That's what they were expecting. They wanted to sit on the 12 thrones, you know. They were expecting all this, and Jesus said, well, that's not the way it's going to be. So what it says is, verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things, but look at the next phrase. They didn't understand these things what? At first. At first. But, but, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, meaning in Zechariah 9, and that they had done these things to him. So in other words, once when, when Jesus gets on the donkey and starts riding in, they say, what in the world's going on? What are they doing? We don't understand any of this. But a week later, after he's put to death and he's raised from the dead and he's glorified and God sends the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost suddenly their eyes were open they said oh now we understand when he rode on a horse he was fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy he came not to conquer Rome he came to conquer Rome and the world through the proclamation of the word oh now we get it you see so after the fact they have 2020 uh, sight, sort of 2020 hindsight, and they realize that at that point. Okay, now we have a focus change. Now look at verse 17. We have a focus change. Okay, in verses 12 through 16, that deals with the crowd who went out. They went out and hailed him and waved the palm branches, and 
we get their perspective of who Jesus is. The crowd that goes out. But look at verse 17. It tells us about the crowd that's going into the city. Okay? So we had talked about the crowd that came out. Now we talk about the crowd that goes into the city. And there are thousands of them coming into the city. Thousands of pilgrims. Jesus is one of them. He's heading toward the city. So look what it says in verse 17. Therefore the people who were with him, that's the pilgrims heading toward the city, therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, what did they do? Verse 17. They bore witness. They testified, didn't they? The crowd that was with him and saw him raising Jesus, Lazarus from the dead and heard about it, as they're coming into the city, guess what they did? They testified about that. About what? About him raising Lazarus from the dead. They said, man, this guy who's coming in, he's only about three blocks outside the city gate now. You should have seen what he did the other day. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And they began to testify and bore witness to the fact that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Who did they tell that to? Who did they bear witness to? The ones that are coming into the city are talking about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Who are they telling it to? Oh, the people who are in the city. And when the people who are in the city hear about it, guess what they do? They get excited and guess what they do? Now they come out of the city. See, that's why you have to see how this thing is laid out. Otherwise, you won't get it. And that's what brings them out of the city, hearing about this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. And you see that very clearly in verse 18. For this reason, see what it says? For this reason, the people also met him. Why? Because they heard that he had done this sign. You see that? So, what brings them out of the city to hail Jesus as a king? What was it? The fact that they had heard that he performed the miracle. Now, if you look back up at verse 12, look what it says. The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they did what? Heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took out their palm branches. Notice in verse 12. When did they do it? When they heard something. Now look at verse 17 and 18. Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, raising from the dead, bore witness. And for this reason, when the people also met him, the people also met him because they what? Heard that he had done this sign. You see that? And notice the phrase, this sign. You see that? Or that sign. Uh, for John's, in John's Gospel, the raising of Lazarus is the ultimate sign that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, Jesus performs seven signs or miracles in John's Gospel. But this is the sign that convinces the multitudes that he's the Messiah. This is the ultimate sign. And their reasoning is this. That if he can raise Lazarus from the dead, is there anything that he can't do? If he can raise, if he can conquer death by raising Lazarus from the dead, he can certainly conquer Caesar. That's why they think he's a great warrior. He's, now, one of the things that the, the Jews believed that was when the kingdom of God came upon the earth, the dead would be raised from, would be would be raised to life. That was one of the marks of the kingdom. When the kingdom came on earth, the dead would be raised to life. And guess what? 
Now they're hearing that there has been one raised from the dead. Who is that? Lazarus. Who raised him from the dead? Jesus. If Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead, there's nothing he can't do. He's going to come in and he's going to overthrow Rome. And it's very clear. So that's the crowd that goes out. Why did they go out? Because they heard about this great sign. By the way, this sign, where he says this sign, when they heard about this sign, this sign, or the raising of Lazarus from the dead, is only found in the Gospel of John. Raising of Lazarus from the dead is not found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. John says it's such a significant event that this is what causes the people to go out and proclaim him to be the conquering king who will overthrow Rome. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospel, Jesus raises other people from the dead, but in John's Gospel, alone, he raises Lazarus from the dead. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead in Luke's Gospel. That's the resurrection in Luke's Gospel. He raised the widow's son who had died and they were proceeding with the casket to the to the cemetery, and he goes and he touches the casket and raises the kid from the dead. The widow names the son. That's the resurrection in another gospel. The resurrection account in John's gospel is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And he says, this is the sign that caused the people to come out and proclaim him to be the Messiah, although they had a false concept of the Messiah. Okay, now we get another perspective, and this is the perspective of the Pharisees. Now look at verse 19. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, this is a private conversation that they're having with the leadership, the Jewish leadership. Maybe they're looking down upon the events that are happening outside the city gate. Maybe they're you know, on some precipice or pinnacle of the temple, and they're able to look down from that vantage point and see everything that's happening down there below how the crowds are converging and all this. And they start talking amongst themselves. Verse 19, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you accomplish nothing. Look at that statement. That's a sort of strange statement. They having a private conversation. They say, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Now, the last time we saw the Pharisees was back in 1147. Look at that. You can find that in your Bible. And this is when they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with Jesus. Remember that? And they decide they're going to kill him. Look at 1147. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, and they said, what shall we do for this man works many signs? Do you see that? That's 1147. Who's there in 1147? The Pharisees and who? The chief priests. And they sort of come to a conclusion. Remember? The head priest, Caiaphas, said, ah, we should just kill him. Remember that? <laughs> You were here a couple weeks ago, you'll remember that. And now, it just seems these two throngs are coming together outside the city gate. Thousands of people outside the city gate, hailing Jesus as the Messiah. And the Pharisees see what's happening, and look what they do in verse 19. They say, you see, you're accomplishing nothing. Who are they talking to there? You see, you're accomplishing nothing. Probably talking to the priest, the chief priest and the religious leaders. And then look what else they say. Look! The world's gone after him. 
you know, now I'm sure that from the Pharisee standpoint, this is a this is a an exaggeration. This is a hyperbole. The world's going after him. Obviously, the whole world wasn't going after him. But the irony is that indeed the world is going after him. Because Jesus has come not to reach the Jews only, but also to reach who? For God so loved what? The world. So they actually speak more than they understand. They're using hyperbole. Look, everybody's going after him. And the truth of the matter is he's come to rescue the world. And he's going to do it, however, through peaceful means. And they said, we, we can't stop him. It just seems like everybody's behind him. So, here's the question. Is this a triumphal entry? Is he coming in to overthrow Rome? Is it a triumphal entry? Doesn't seem like it, does it? Actually, it's a humble entry, and he's marching towards his own death. He's not going to conquer Rome. What's going to happen is that he is coming... And he's going to end up on the cross. So it's not a, what we call a triumphal. It's sort of different than that. <clears throat> now, these events take place in 30 AD. John's audience is reading it 50 years later. Right? So they know something, don't they? What do they know? <laughs> they know he didn't overthrow Rome, don't they? <laughs> They know it's not a triumphal entry, don't they? See, Jesus didn't come and conquer Rome through means of violence, but he comes and he conquers all the powers of evil by taking violence upon himself. And Rome crucifies him. They put him to death and we say, we're finished with him. And it looks like that they've conquered him and they put him in the grave, you see. They've won the war. If there was anybody that was triumphant, it was Rome. They put him on the cross. They killed him. They foisted their violence, ultimate violence, upon Jesus. But in reality, it's through his death that he does conquer the world and is going to set up his kingdom. Because instead of lashing out, and he says to Paul, I could call for 10,000 names. I could throw you just like that if I wanted to use violence. He doesn't do that, does he? He just stands there. He takes the hit, trusting his father that somehow this is all in his father's plan. And three days later, what does God do? He raises him from the dead, never to die again. Now let me ask you a question. Who was one, Jesus or Rome? Can Rome kill him again? No. Can Rome, and he ascends and sits at God's right hand, and he reigns as king over the entire earth. So notice that his, his uh, conquering evil and the world and the kingdoms comes by him taking the hit himself. So, now what I think is happening is, and I'm going to probably stop at this point, I think John's audience, reading this 50 years later, is facing a lot of persecution. They're being threatened because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And you know, when you're threatened, <clears throat> there's usually one or two responses that you'll take, two, one or two actions that you'll take. In psychology, it's called the fight or flight mechanism. Fight or flight. Somebody comes up against you and starts being violent toward you, you fight them. That's called the fight response. 
Or the other is that you, you run, that's the flight. And what we have here is that Jesus wants his audience, or the Gospel of John wants his audience to realize that Jesus was in a similar situation. He didn't fight. He didn't cry out for mercy and run away. Instead, instead of fight or flight, the solution was faith. And he stood there trusting God to take care of him. And three days later, what? God raised him from the dead. The solution was something that the human mind can hardly comprehend. And he wants, John wants his audience to do the same thing that Jesus did. Now I'll show you why I believe that. Okay? Look again at verse 15. <clears throat> Look what it says. Quotes Zechariah. And here's what it says. Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. See those first two words? Fear not. You see that? That's not in Zechariah. That's not how Zechariah 9 opens up. Zechariah 9 opens up with the words, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! But the Gospel writer John decides not to put that in the quote. He decides to start the quote with the words, Daughter of Zion. That's where he starts the Zechariah quote. And he interjects his own feelings in those first two words where he's saying to his audience that's reading this, what does he say to them? Fear not! Fear not! See? Behold, your king is coming, sitting on the donkey of a colt. He said, just as Jesus, just follow the method of Jesus. You have nothing to fear. Don't, don't fight the adversary who's persecuting you. Don't fear the adversary who's persecuting you and run away. But like Jesus, that's why he says, fear not. Just stand there in faith and trust God to take care of you. And you know something? The adversary may come and put you to death. They put Jesus to death. You'll become a martyr for your faith. But guess what happens? When God sets up his ultimate kingdom on the earth, all who died in Christ will what? Rise. And we who are alive will be transformed. And so that's the message of Palm Sunday, I think, according to John's Gospel, which is a little different than the other Gospels. Next week we'll pick up in verse 20. Right. Lord, we thank you that we can look at a passage like this and realize that John has a perspective. John, the Gospel writer John, has an agenda for his audience. He tells the story of Palm Sunday in such a way that it, that it will have application and meaning for his readers. And Lord, there's an application for us too. Jesus did not come and overthrow the world governments through violence, but took violence. He didn't kill Caesar, but was killed by Caesar. He operated totally by faith. Oh Lord, help us to realize that. And next week, during the Easter season, we'll see the result of that faith. Resurrection from the dead. In Christ's name we pray.